2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 11 through 21. That's found on page 966. 966. That's if you have a pew Bible. If you brought your own Bible, it might not be on page 966. But in the pew Bibles, that's what page it's on. We're beginning our series, as Brian said, uh, on redeeming the whole as we consider Christ's work as he came to earth incarnate and then died and was raised for us to restore us to God, has an effect on our relationship to God, to others, to ourselves, and to the world itself. And so this morning we're going to look at relationship to God. But you'll see from this context that relationship with God has everything to do. In fact, it's the root of our attitude toward one another as well. So even in this text, when we talk about God, we'll see how it affects all else as well. Therefore, verse 11, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord. Now, The context is, notice verse 10, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And so with Paul's strong sense of accountability and responsibility to to appear before God, he says, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, knowing and respecting and reverencing this God and my future appearance before him, That's why we persuade others, okay? But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us. Because we've concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Thus, the reading of God's word. Let us pray. O Lord, bless our understanding 
And Lord, bless our receiving this word, hiding it in our hearts and practicing it in our lives in how we think and how we speak and how we live. Oh, Lord, bless us by your spirit, we pray, for this glory of Jesus. Amen. One of the constant refrains in the New Testament is the concern to live before unbelievers in a proper way. So Paul, in talking to the Thessalonians, stresses how they must support themselves and not be dependent on anyone, work faithfully with their hands, he says, so that they will walk properly before outsiders. Okay, that's the concern. In another place, he's talking to young widows and saying, don't be busybodies and don't be gossips so that our adversary will have no occasion for slander. Okay, again, this concern for the outside opinions. Elders of all their qualifications are also to be well thought of by outsiders. That's how valid this is. If they've not lived in a way that's so that they're well thought of by outsiders, they don't need to be leaders in the church. And he goes on to say that slaves in Titus 2 are to be submissive and not argumentative, not pilfering, you know, leaking things into their possessions from their masters, so that they will adorn the doctrine of our God. There again, the concern for your character and how it affects those outside the church. And so, even when you're spoken of as evildoers, they were slandered quite often by the surrounding uh, uh, community, he says in 1 Peter 2, keep your conduct honorable among the Gentiles so that when they speak of you as evildoers, they may see good deeds, your good deeds, and glorify God. And so, he can say in a general way in Titus later, show perfect courtesy to all people. Now, if this is the case for every believer, imagine the stakes for the apostles themselves. And so Paul in 2 Corinthians is dealing with being slandered terribly by those who are false apostles coming with a false message. You can pick up on this if you'll turn to 2 Corinthians 11. He'll say, I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. And he talks about someone proclaiming another Jesus to you. And then later in verse 13, such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. No wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. It's no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. So these false teachers, likely uh, Jewish people because of other things he says, uh, Jewish Christians or so-called Christians coming in, undermining Paul and especially slandering Paul as to his motives, as to his being a genuine apostle at all. 
But if they can undermine Paul, they undermine the whole gospel. And they can put their false gospel, which lands people not in salvation, but in ruin forever, they can put it in Paul's place. That's why Paul spends so much time in this letter setting forth his credentials, which are simply the credentials of his true life that he's lived before them. Now, that helps us as we come to this passage because he says here after, he says, we persuade others. Really, the background of this is we persuade others with all sincerity of heart. That's what he said before in chapter 2, verse 17. He says, there, we're not like so many, these false uh, apostles, peddlers of God's word, using it for money gain to make it whatever we want it to be. But as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. And later in chapter 4, verse 2, we've renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. So you see, when Paul says here, we persuade others, it comes with this whole world of being accused as, a, as someone false and, and being attacked by false apostles who are trying to undermine the whole message of the gospel and replace it with a false gospel. That's why Paul says, after saying, we persuade others with the understanding, we sincerely persuade others, but what we are is known to God. In other words, no matter what anyone says, God knows our heart. And then he says, I hope you also know our heart. Because we're not committing ourselves to you. And he uses this in a negative way. We're not puffing up ourselves, exalting ourselves in an empty way with, with, with no character. Just puffed up, talking about ourselves to draw attention to ourselves. We're simply putting our character before you, as he said earlier in chapter 4. We're just commending our character to you. We're not making up things at all. And we're giving you reason to defend us. We're giving you reason to say, no, we know the heart of Paul. Notice how he says it in chapter 6, verse 4. As servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors. Paul says, we're not puffed up and just talking about ourselves with words. We're just putting our character we're putting our, our history, we're putting our resume out there in this sense. We suffer for this gospel. We speak honestly, straightforward of this gospel. And we suffer the consequences. We are sincere and God knows it. And we hope you realize that as well. And then he caps it off by saying in verse 13. So if we're beside ourselves, like some must say, Paul's just crazy. He just works all the time and he doesn't take money from anybody. And he's just mad. He's just out of his mind. He says, if so, that's for God. And if we're in our right mind, it's for you. He's saying here, our utter sincerity is known to God. We are living for God's glory and we're living for your good. 
Now, it's a remarkable thing that Paul can put out there his character and his record, isn't it? So this is my commendation. I don't have any letters of commendation. I don't have big uh, rosy words about my life. I simply put before you what, how we've lived up to this point. I simply put before you our honesty, our sincerity, our suffering before God. Now here's, here's the glorious thing in this passage. Paul then goes to the deepest, most beautiful statements as, as beautiful as anywhere in Scripture, about the work of Christ as the root of this amazing sincerity. And isn't that what all of you and I want in our lives, to be utterly sincere of heart? Isn't that what you fight against and I fight against? We, we fight against this putting ourselves up here when we know we're in a different place to really be open and honest with people, to be straightforward with people, and to have genuine passions, genuine love for God and genuine love for people. That, that's the hardest part of our lives. Where does this come from in Paul? How can he just say, we're utterly sincere. God knows our sincerity. We, we do all of this in the sight of God. We're an open book before him. Our motives are an open book before God. And we commend ourselves to you in that way. I, I want to have that in my life. I want to have a growing, burgeoning sincerity in my life that I can say these things along with Paul. Well, where does it come from? It comes from, notice verse 14... Why does this happen? Why do we have this love for God and love for others? Why are we so utterly sincere? Because the love of Christ controls us. Christ's love for us governs us, rules us, restrains us is another meaning, but the word control is the best word for it. It is what rules all of our motives. It's why we do what we do, because this love of Christ controls us. And notice, we've concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. Now, the all in this circumstance means all kinds of people, every kind of people. Behind this is the constant reference in the, in the New Testament to not only Jews, but Gentiles, Okay. So it's a good way to even think about it. He's died for all people, every kind of people. Therefore, all have died. So whoever he's died for are united in him and die with him. So he's talking about the all that end up in Christ and die with Christ. And then notice he says it again. And he died for this all that those who live might no longer live for themselves but for uh, him who for their sake died and was raised. So uh, the love of Christ controls us because we are die, we've died in him and we've been raised with him. We now live in him and we no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died and was raised for us. So the love of Christ controls me because I have died in him and I've been raised in him no longer to live my, for myself, but to live for my Lord, to live for this one who died for me. He's captivated my heart, this one who died for me and was raised. And so I no longer am basically living for myself, but I'm living for God and living for others. 
And we can say that this is the only way any of us will take one step in sincere love to others. Sincere, honest love for God and desire God's glory, except that we are impacted deeply by Christ's love for us. He says, we live specifically for the one who died for us and was raised for us. He has captivated our hearts. And it is being enraptured with him that I've released from my commitment to myself. I love uh, Calvin and Hobbes because Calvin is a great example most of the time of what not to be, right? What not to do. And a great example is even Waterston, the uh, author of Calvin and Hobbes, mentions as uh, many times our dark side. So here's Calvin on Mother's Day, okay? His mom's in bed. Hey, Mom, wake up. I made you a Mother's Day card. Why? She's just smiling sincerely. Why? How sweet of you. I did it all by myself. Go ahead and read it. He's just smiling and looking off, you know, like so proud. So she's reading. I was going to buy a card with hearts of pink and red, but then I thought I'd rather spend the money on me instead. It's awfully hard to buy things when one's allowance is so small. Calvin's (coughs) like this. So I guess you're pretty lucky I got you anything at all. Happy Mother's Day to you. There, I said it. Now I'm done. So how about getting out of bed and cooking breakfast for your son? And she, with a sarcastic look, says, I'm deeply moved. And Calvin says, even then, did you notice the part about my allowance? So here's Calvin. It's Mother's Day. And he's turning the whole thing away from his mother to himself, isn't he? Turning the whole thing away from honoring her to how can I manipulate this day for myself? How can I justify the fact that I spent the money on myself? How can I then make her feel guilty and have her give me more money as allowance? And then how can I also get her out of bed so she'll cook breakfast for me, right? All pointed this way. That's a great picture of how we move in life. It's a great picture of how much, even in marriage, we bring to the table of expecting to be served. And even everything we say and do, having this undercover of, I hope this ultimately works for my good. I hope I get a benefit from this. In this maybe uh, silent manipulation of the other one, hoping that it will end up in something good for me. Not simply doing good for the pure sake that this person will receive good, whatever I get out of it. Ah, that's a hard one for us. It's really a hard one. Sincerely longing for the good of another person even when another person is not doing good for you and you still sincerely long for the good of that person. Long for it with all of your heart as they do you wrong. 
That is what Paul says has happened in Christ and will happen in Christ. That the love of Christ will so control us that we will no longer live for ourselves, but we will live for him who for our sake died and was raised. When his death is more and more applied to us, when we more and more delve into the meaning and the love behind that death, then we are more and more set free to love others the way he loved us in his death. His death makes a continual deepening impact on our life to set us free from self. And so he can say, therefore, there are two therefores from this death of Christ for us. Therefore, in verse 16, therefore, in verse 17. And that second one kind of continues to the end. So, verse 16, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once did so for Christ, we don't any longer. In other words, we no longer are set on manipulating other people or viewing them according to outward circumstances. We are sincerely loving them from the heart and regarding them from the standpoint of Christ and the gospel. <clears throat> so we, we don't favor people because of outward show or circumstance or gifts or money or anything else. We don't regard them according to the flesh, and we're not using them for our purposes. He said, we once even regarded Christ, and here he's talking about himself. I used to think he was a pretender. I thought he was a false messiah. I thought he was a liar and a heretic and crucified and cursed by God. I came to view him very differently as the Savior of mankind. So that's one therefore. Therefore, because of this love of Christ... We don't regard people the way we used to. And therefore, because of this death of Christ, if we're in him, we're a new creation. Because we've died in him and we now live in him. We're part of the new creation that has been brought about by his death and resurrection. The old life with all of the things that controlled us, with all the old connections Uh, all the old slavery, all the old commitments, all the old perspectives. This has passed away. We've been brought into a new environment. We've been brought into new relationships with God and other people. The old is gone. The new has come. And then to connect this with the glorious love of God himself, he says, all of this is from God. This is from God. He was through Christ reconciling us to himself and gave us this ministry of reconciliation of which we sincerely carry out before you. That is, in Christ God was reconciling the world. That is, Jews and Gentiles to himself, not counting those who trusted in him their trespasses against us, against them. And entrusting to us this great message of reconciliation. Now, this is remarkable. In the day of uh, Augustine, when the Roman Empire was spread out and spreading, it's interesting that ambassadors generally came from other surrounding nations to Rome to win peace. Okay, They didn't want war. 
They didn't want to get attacked by Rome. And they came in order to, to make relations, to fix relations, to create peace so that there wouldn't be conflict between the, their nations and Rome. And so Augustus is able to boast royal <clears throat> embassies from India, never previously seen before any Roman general, were often sent to me. Our friendship was sought through ambassadors by the Bastarnians and the Scythians and by the kings of the Samardians who live on both sides of the Don River and by the kings of the Albanians and of the Iberians and of the Medes, okay? You get the idea, all of these people coming to the mighty king. But this is different, isn't it? God, the mighty king, who has issue with us, we who had rebelled against him, we who deserve his punishment, he makes reconciliation. And he makes reconciliation and then offers it through his minister saying, be reconciled to God through the death of his own son. This is incredible in this world uh, in which they found themselves of Augustine and these nations coming to him to try to win peace. Here's the mighty king himself, not not only seeking to reconcile his enemies to him, but offering up his son to reconcile his enemies to himself. And so... The ambassadors would come and be able to say, God has acted in his own son to reconcile you. God is kindly favored to reconcile you. God is gracious and offers himself, offers the death of his own son so that you might be fully restored to him and know his favor and smile for your whole life. And isn't it amazing that In a normal courtroom situation, when the judge would pronounce you not guilty, you're not expecting that the judge then is going to invite you over for dinner afterwards, right? He's not there to be your friend. He's just there to render judgment. And as one commentator commenting on Romans, uh, where there was this talk of justification and then reconciliation says, that, uh, you know, most people don't even want to see the judge again after that, right? Uh, he pronounced me not guilty. I'm out of here. I'm gone. But this judge declares you not guilty. But he says, I want to be your friend. I want to have dinner with you. I want to live with you. I want to dwell with you and in you. I want to be your friend forever. I want to be dedicated to you as your God. I want to show my favor to you and my goodness to you every day of your life. I want reconciliation. I want friendship. I want there to be peace between us. And I have acted on the death of my own son to create this peace. Will you not have it? Will you not accept this peace? Will you not be reconciled to God? That's the God that Paul's talking about. That's the God that caused him to be controlled by the love of Christ. And you see, here's what happens when you're reconciled to God, when Jesus acts and his death is affected in your life and my life, what's the end result? I'm 
governed now by his love. I'm not governed by fear of, of, of being judged one day, not in the sense he says in verse 10 of, of appearing as one bought by Christ's blood and, and his works uh, appear before God. But I, I, don't, I don't dread God's wrath anymore. I'm, I'm motivated by this love that God showed me in Christ because it was God in Christ doing this, God acting through Christ to demonstrate himself through Christ. And so to be reconciled to God has as its result of being loved by God, loved by Christ. And then that ushers in my dedication to being sincerely a lover of people, to love others as God has loved me. And he gets to the very heart of what God did in that reconciliation in verse 21. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. This means that God made Christ indistinguishable from sin, though he himself knew no sin. He was made one with sin and its consequences. Therefore, he was estranged. He was the object of God's wrath on our behalf. And you see, that's the corollary to what he says in verse 19, not counting their trespasses against them. Why? Because he counted their trespasses against Christ. Made him to be sin so that he could not count their trespasses against them. This is how you're forgiven of your sins. Through the immense and unimaginable suffering of Christ in your place, Bearing your sin. This is what God offers. And as well, he offers that in him, notice, we might become the righteousness of God. And there is the key to your enjoying the love of Christ. When you become the righteousness of God in Christ, it's not simply that you have a certain righteousness of your own that waxes and wanes from day to day. But no, you stand clothed in and identified with a righteousness that can be called the righteousness of God, that God imparts to you, a righteousness that fully pleases him. That's why you have his favor. That's why you have his smile upon you. That's why you know that you are loved by him because you don't stand in your own righteousness, but all of your sins have been put upon him. He was made to be sin. So God now is not counting my trespasses against me. Now God can reconcile himself completely to me and embrace me and commit himself to me. Therefore, I can constantly know his love for me in Christ. And that frees me in that love to love others with sincerity. Here's the heart of your whole life. The heart of your whole life is that God was in Christ reconciling you to himself through the very death of his own son. And isn't it interesting that he then addresses the Corinthians, you be reconciled to God. 
because the Corinthians were in danger of embracing a false gospel, alienating themselves from the true people of God, estranging themselves from God, and therefore Paul can say, you be reconciled to God. And if you are not reconciled to one another or being reconciled to one another, and you're not reconciled to God's people, you need to be reconciled, not just to them, but to God. Paul's not saying, reconcile yourself to me, reconcile yourself to his true people. He says, your issue at being a, a disunited from, from the gospel and God's people is you're not reconciled to God. So reconciliation means that we will be working for reconciliation. It means that we will be loving sincerely, that we will be manifesting the very death of Christ in our life as we die for others in sincere love. And I'm not saying this to you so that you're like, okay, I've got to get that way before God will accept me. No, I'm I'm trying to throw the doors wide open. Look how great his salvation is. His salvation is this great. He will bring you to this place where more and more you will no longer live for yourself, but you truly will live for the Lord. You truly will be sincerely giving yourself away to people. That's not just a possibility. That's the reality of his salvation. That's what it means to be reconciled to this God. Let us pray. Oh, Lord, we thank you for the greatness of your salvation. We thank you for the new creation of which we are part. That we can have new attitudes toward people, a new heart toward you, a new sincerity of love, all because we are so deeply affected by the love of this God who would reconcile us to himself who would long for that reconciliation to such an extent that he would come and take our sin upon himself. Oh, Lord, we can't fathom your love. We just can't. Bless us with greater and greater insight into its beauty and depth and richness that it would more and more control our lives. For your sake we pray. Amen.